Welcome, everyone, to a very special edition of Talk Hard. Uh, guys, we're going to do our first interview today in this edition uh, in the next segment. But um, first, well, we're going to interview Mr. John Gibson, who did a uh, who did a zombie horror western uh, mashup film um, cross genre. So I'm going to introduce you guys today with some zombie movie titles that I found. Mm. Uh, so first of all, from right here in Frankfort, Kentucky, Big Tits Zombie, Scott Stafford. I don't know what to say. Nothing to say. Right here along with him. We're all in the same room for a change, but uh, all the way up from Danville, Kentucky is Choking Hazard, Todd Sheen. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a theme here, guys. I've... I've... Oh. I'm leaving them speechless. And finally, myself, I, I came up from Danville as well. L.A. Zombie, Gay of the Dead, <laughs> Alan Martin. And these are all actual uh, zombie movie titles. And probably so, available. Yeah. I don't know what or... the appeal of a big tit zombie would be. I don't, <laughs> I don't see why I'd want to see that whatsoever. Well, I mean, you know, as long as if they, so if they jutted out enough... <laughs> You could still get close to them without getting bitten, and then yourself turn into a zombie. I, I would think would be the the number one reason. It's a disadvantage if you're a Dolly Parton zombie, is That's what you're true. saying. She's yeah. gonna not fare as well in the in the feeding frenzy. True. Well, we're ready for our first guest ever here on Talk Art. Wow! How about that? I'm excited. Joining us, John Gibson, producer and multimedia engineer with Norse Media. Is that correct, John? Uh, that is correct. Okay. So, Norse Media and Northern uh, Kentucky University. That's right. A lecturer in the electronics media program, yes? Uh, yeah, it's uh, electronic media and broadcasting. I have to say it that way because if not, I will probably get yelled at at some point <laughs> by like the chair or you know, whoever else. So, yeah, that's because it. Because I'm sure the chair's listening. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> This dude, this is totally going into some kind of portfolio for me to get some fat raise someday, <laughs> and then we all laugh because we're talking higher education, so and fat raises. Um, so let's start off. I want to get I want to get your background. First sure. of all, I'll tell everybody how we met you. Um, we met you at the Rivers Edge International Film Festival in what year was that? Uh, well, funny enough, it would be, tw I think, 2013, and no joke, I know that because I'm actually wearing the River's Edge oh, wow. shirt right now. That was not planned today. It was the only t-shirt I had clean. I'm like, well, I'll just put this on. Don't be embarrassed. You can And be. it comes in handy for this question right here. That's right. Yeah. Very handy. Huh. Um, and that's great because the three of us all just stared at each other with blank looks when I asked that question. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say 2014, but I, th I was thinking it, it was before... It was maybe a year before that, so I was thinking that if that counts. <laughs> it <laughs> it counts. <laughs> so okay, um, yeah. So let's talk about your background a little bit. Sure. Let's back everything up, and I want to walk this through to find out how you get to where you are today, basically. 
Okay. Uh, I'll give you the, the really, really condensed version. Um, so basically, uh, I wanted to be, uh, you know, I used to make like cheesy stop motion movies in high school and college, uh, or not in, well, I, I still made them in college, but, you know, I kind of started in middle school and high school making really like cheesy stop motion movies or, you know, if I could get out of a book report by making a movie, um, then I would make the movie to entertain my classmates so I wouldn't have to do the book report, if that made sense. And sometimes that was stop motion. Sometimes that would be some kind of live action parody or something like that. Um, but I actually wanted to be a high school history teacher. And, uh, and then in college, uh, I got I, I kind of kept, you know, I was going to get my secondary education uh, certificate. I was a history major, political science minor. Um, and I also got involved in a film club. At, at Mur- and this was at Murray State University. I got involved in a film club there. And so I kept making, like, really cheesy stop-motion movies and live-action movies on the side. Um, but that was just for this club. And then we would screen those for people. Uh, where I'm going with this is filmmaking. I had, um, I guess, no desire, really, to make anything filmmaking-related my profession or passion. It was always just something I did for fun. Um, to enter, Basically, to... Uh, well, kind of like uh, what I consider what you guys do, except mine was much lower quality. You guys create, you know, from from what I've seen from River's Edge, very entertaining, fun films with your friends, you know. Um, <laughs> and that's what we did in the film club, except my uh, my quality was significantly worse. Uh, but I learned a lot from those experiences of like, oh, this is how I make people laugh more or this is how I tell a better story. And I kept kind of doing that all on the side. My point of this being... Um, it was about two weeks before graduation, my undergrad. Uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life um, because I had decided long before then that I didn't want to be a high school teacher. Um, it just wasn't my passion anymore. And so I was about to graduate with a history degree and no clue. I was actually working in the automotive section of Walmart. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people are always like, oh, so you know a lot about cars. I'm like, oh. <laughs> No, no, no! I'm the guy that you have running the register in the automotive section of Walmart because I don't, you don't want me to put your car. So, so this uh, guy Gary Scott comes in and he says, um, you know, it's two weeks before I graduate, and uh, I, I ring him up for a car stereo or something, and he says, uh, you've got a really good voice. Have you ever considered radio? And I said, uh, yeah, well, not really. And I'm also about to graduate. I don't really know what I'm doing. And he said, um, there's a part-time job opening at the local NPR station for board operators. Uh, he's like, you've got a really good voice. I want you to go in. I want you to apply for this. And this was like on a Thursday. And he said, um, I'm going to give you the number of the station, the, the program director, Mark Welch, all that. And he says, uh, if you don't go in, or uh, I'm going to call on Tuesday to make sure that you've come in for an interview. If you have not, I'm going to come back here and ask you why you've not done that. <laughs> oh, wow. I know that's it. And I always tell this story online and to students and all that. And they kind of laugh. I go, here's the deal. There's one of three things. Either one, he was a serial killer. Uh, two, he was like sent back in time, John, uh, like John Connor style, uh, to like get me to do something to save humanity. Uh, or three, he was like a guardian angel. One of those three. Uh, but uh, Or I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And so to, to spin this around very quickly, basically what happened was I got a part-time gig in radio. Uh, and it kind of changed the trajectory of my life um, because then, thanks to that and my um, the fun film stuff I did on the side, I got a job in media production, which was part-time. Um, and then eventually I went back, got my master's, and I decided that teaching media is what I wanted to do professionally. Um, and then, you know, all along the way, 
um, because of all the things I created and screwed up on and learned from and re- rinse, repeat, um, you know, I eventually got to where I was, I felt pretty confident as far as my filmmaking skills go as well. So that's kind of a rambly story, but I guess that kind of gets you to why John Gibson is sitting here, you know, chatting with you guys on Skype right now is that that, that weird path of thinking I was going to do one thing and in reality I'm, I'm actually doing something completely different and I love it. Um, that's how I, I got from those points. Yeah, that's pretty much a perfect way to, to walk us through. Yeah. There was a lot of the questions I was going to ask. So teaching was basically your passion all along. It was. Um, teaching was always my passion. I think what it was is that I did some observations for the secondary uh, education degree, you know, or for the certificate. So I had to actually go to high schools and things like that and just kind of observe uh, and, and actually teach a practice lesson to some students. And I think I realized um, high school was not the same as a teacher as it was as a student, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You, you Pop culture, uh, your own perceptions <laughs> right. make you think that like high school is always going to be fun and, oh, there's the lovable class clown and, <laughs> oh, there's the there's the inspirational, awesome teacher. And that's you know, that may or may not always be the case, you know, and, and I, I guess I realized that I just, it wasn't for me. Um, and, and so, yeah, there was really a, a while where I didn't know what to do. Um, and actually when I went back to get my grad, uh, degree, they needed a TA for a, a basic production class and they asked me if I wanted to do it. And that's kind of what made me realize I, it, I wanted to teach I just didn't, hadn't known where I wanted to teach before. And then that kind of opened my eyes to, hey, I actually kind of like college teaching. You know, it's a mm-hmm. bit more fun. So, yeah, it would have to be, I would think. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and I, I, got, I say all that. I've got all the respect in the world for, you know, high school educators and stuff. And I did have some really all amazing high school teachers. I just, like I said, it was that reality of I, I probably won't be that person. You no, know, like no, they're the worst. Yeah, let's just <laughs> let's just say it. We heard you say it. <laughs> yeah, you'll uh, yeah, just edit that later. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what it'll be. Um, so there was, if I go back and talk to a twelve-year-old John Gibson, he's not going to tell me. And I ask him, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" He's not going to say a movie director. No, he's actually going to say he wants to be a paleontologist wow. until he realizes how hard or how much <laughs> math is involved, and uh, he's like, "Nope, I'll be a high school history teacher." <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about the filmmaking then. Sure. What? How do you view that area of your life now? Is it is it strictly hobby? Is it something that you have goals for? No, um, actually, it's uh, it is very much. I tell people it's it's like a second job, and also when on set, um, it's almost like a second two jobs, or mm-hmm. you know, depending. We're all in indie film of uh, like forty jobs that you have to do um, to get something made. But um, I don't see it as a hobby anymore, um, although I still will do some things uh, more for – I guess the better phrase now is not a hobby, a professional development. You know, like some projects, like small projects I'll work on just to kind of better myself, um, but it's not necessarily something I'm um, – you know, those things I don't look at as a career. But I definitely – as far as there's been some shorter film projects and the feature film and also um, there's a lot more writing that I'm doing now as well. Um, and I do consider it now, while it's not my, um, profession that I get paid for, it is my profession, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, like if I get paid for it, it's usually in like free food on a set or something like that. And that's a okay with me. (laughs) So we have a, 
a couple of questions for you as an indie artist that we kind of asked each other uh, in one of the early episodes of this show. And one of them was, what's the ultimate success for you as a filmmaker in your mind? What would be the ultimate success? Sure. Um, ultimate success is, I guess I could look at this a couple of different ways, but I, I guess the one thing is my ultimate success would be that um, I have a few more projects under my belt that I guess people always say the same thing about, which would be, and I'm trying to think how to quantify this here. Um, those are good stories. You know, like I want people mm -hmm. when they think of like the stuff I've done to think of quality writing, good character, good story. Um, success isn't necessarily going to be measured financially. It's going to be measured by what do people say about my work. Um, and, and that's, that's for me is kind of like the ultimate and that's what I always am kind of striving for. Um, and it's actually, I mean, it's a nice little, sometimes it's a nice little ego boost to pass a script to somebody and they say, this is an amazing story or I cried at the end of this and all it is, is like a 18 page short film, you know? And that for me definitely helps me realize that this is what I need to be doing, you know? Um, and so but if you want to quantify it, I guess the ultimate success would be at least two more features and maybe like there's my goal is to do like a, a Netflix original animated series or like a Hulu animated series or something like that. So that's my that's my ultimate success. You know, if you put it into numbers, I guess. Mm -hmm. Is that a lateral move from the 2013 uh, goal <laughs> of getting on sci fi? Yeah, it, possibly. Uh, yeah. Although I would still go for it. I mean, the the idea that I've got for for the animated series could definitely fit on the sci-fi. It was actually originally supposed to be an Adult Swim show, um, but when I envisioned it, it was in this was like in two thousand six or seven that I first started conceptualizing it. And there was no Netflix, there was no you know Hulu or anything like that that you know I had on demand, and. Um, and that's kind of changed things completely. I'll still take sci-fi. You know, I won't complain. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Uh, definitely branching out a little bit. Um, for an indie artist, mm -hmm. not making money, spending time, money, and resources of your own, when is it time to hang it up? And I'm talking in general. I'm talking about 30-year-olds with a band, mm -hmm. with a garage band. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, a, a, a painter. Just you name it. When do you think it's time to hang it up? Well, I'll answer that in a minute, but I'm gonna flip it around on you guys. Think it's, I mean, you guys, uh, uh, well, you guys are only like like 20, right? I mean, you oh know, yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah. No, 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 okay. So, no, yes, when's it? yes, 20, 20. <laughs> Todd is right. But. Yeah. I mean, you guys. Uh, I mean, I know we haven't like seen each other in person since uh, August of or November of 2013 mm. and stuff. But I know you guys are like you've cranked out quite a bit of stuff. When do you guys think there's gonna come a point where you're like, and we're done, dude? It's like this, this, this podcast stuff so much easier than filmmaking. So let's just do that. Mm -hmm. We talked about it a little bit on the show. And, and I think what a lot of us came up with was for one thing, when the other two are done, then, <laughs> then basically I'm done and I'll, and then gotcha. I'll start to write. Um, okay. but basically as long as we're enjoying it was like, I'll do it as long as these two want to. And, and that was kind of the, the conclusion that I came to. Cause it, you know, it's, it's a chance for us to spend time together. Um, there's a lot that we get out of it. Uh, yeah. so as long as everybody's in, as long as everybody's enjoying it, then, then that was the answer for us. Yeah. Well, and I, I remember too, watching your old film in the, uh, and if, I can't remember the name. I was the paranormal, um, investigators, uh, I think of the sheriff, was that 
Am I remembering this correctly? Yes. Uh, okay, gotcha. Yes. That's what I was trying to, like I said, I couldn't remember the name and stuff, and I was going to feel terrible if I was remembering another filmmaker's <laughs> movie. Like, not <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to be allowed to swear or not. But anyway, no, but I remember sitting in the crowd and people were, like, cracking up, and like I and you guys were, like, hanging around each other constantly at the, at the film festival and stuff, and I'm like, you know, that's what I, I always loved about filmmaking was that collaborative aspect and just having, like, a good close group of friends to make things with, or my wife, you know, and so to, to answer your, your question there, I think it would be similar for me. Um, as long as I've still got people who are willing and able to be used and abused, but also <laughs> like to create um, and, and know that I'm willing to be used and abused to, to make things, um, I'll keep doing it. Um, it's also since um, I've had kids, there's this like, you know, I've got a four-year-old and, a, and an 18-month-old. Um, and there's this the, the four-year-old's imagination, Silas's imagination is like insane now. Um, and there's this part of me that like envisions this day where I'm, his mom and I are writing movies and, and making things. He's maybe doing the music to it. Cause I, I really, I, I'm hoping my kid like wants to be a musician. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I don't think about <laughs> money and all that. Just, just be a musician. It'd be awesome. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, long story short, like there's that whole family aspect of it, you know, and in which case I can't really see an end to it. Because I would hope that would be a part of all of our lives, um, and as long as the I, as long well, as the wife is in, there's oh, al- yeah. there's almost no reason to get out, right? As long as you enjoy it, like exactly. And she is, you know, and, and Candace is in on everything, and she's one hundred percent behind everything, and you know, and and but the, there's also that challenge of, I mean, that's kind of the flip side of it. So obviously, you want your family to be involved, and you want you know, but because of the, everything you just mentioned, the time, the money the emotional energy that goes into, uh, you know, we did a, we did a short film. We shot what amounted to about a 30 minute short film in a, in two days, um, this past June. Um, and it was a, it was a very emotional short film. Um, and the thing is, even in two days, I realized how much that wrecked me from, <laughs> from both an emotional but uh-huh. physical standpoint. Like I'm walking around with like a sore back. Uh-huh. And so it's almost like I felt like uh, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull um, in only the good spots of the Crystal Skull. Where he, <laughs> you know, he's Harrison Ford, he's a badass. Uh, but like not all that other stuff, the monkeys and everything. But like I felt like that that Indiana Jones, you know. That was just very much like uh, I'm sore. I'm getting older. This isn't, you know, like my joints are popping a bit more. <laughs> so I guess the long story short is, as long as I've got the family support, which I think I, I will for a very long time, um, I've got the people that I could use and abuse, and emotionally I can still handle it. I'll do it until my body falls apart, mm-hmm. like until I'm on set and like a hand just falls off, and I'm like, well, get some gaff tape, just <laughs> fix it, and or we'll fix it in post, you know, whatever. Um, but I do find myself gravitating more towards writing as well. You know, you, Scott, you, I think, uh, Scott, I think that was you. All right. So I am starting to enjoy that a lot more, um, when I can find the time to do it. So I think that if I were to make an exit from filmmaking, filmmaking, like on set kind of stuff, I would definitely go towards writing. So on that note, let's talk about revelation trail. Sure. Um, and Herculean tasks. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I prefer to call it the white whale. Uh, <laughs> sometimes my students get that reference. Sometimes I don't. I'm like, eh, I'll just I'll send you the production notes sometime. <laughs> why I use white whale. And for anybody that doesn't know, Revelation Trail is a feature length film. Uh, a Western zombie matchup is the easiest way I can put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing that struck us about it, John, is just what an endeavor it was. 
when we go to these festivals, you know, you don't see a lot um, along the lines, especially, I would imagine, self-funded to the degree of what you bit off. Um, So my first question is, was that confidence? And and I'm talking, uh, it's a period piece Mm -hmm. set in the 1800s, yes? Yeah, it's uh, we never give it an exact date, but it's like 1880s. Okay. You know, so that gave us some that gave us some historical flexibility on mm-hmm. some things. Period costumes for mm-hmm. a large cast, uh, lots of actors, locations. Mm-hmm. So the question is, was that confidence or was that naivete on your part? Um, I think a bit of both, honestly. Um, it was. Uh, <sighs> You know, definitely naivety in that a lot of people would say to me, um, I remember before we started, they would say things like, uh, so, oh, that's awesome. Have you ever done a feature before? And these were generally people who had worked on features, mm-hmm. even if they hadn't produced or directed, they they would say, like, have <laughs> right. you worked on a feature? Have you worked on it? And I'd be like, no, but I did do a, uh, you know, a pretty long, like, 30 or 40 minute movie in college. And, and, and somehow I thought that that was my that that is what was going to fully prepare me for what we were about to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I soon realized uh, about a day in or no, actually we didn't even make it to the shoot that I realized that that was in no way, shape or form equivalent to what we were about to do. Um, and, and, and not just from the period standpoint, but you mentioned the amount of extras and and people in it. I mean, you know, everything I did in college, I produced and directed myself, you know, it, it kind of the one man band produce, direct, write, you know, all that. And I kind of tried to do that with this movie. And during the during the summer shoot, so really there was the summer shoot and the winter shoot because of uh, environmental reasons and stuff like that. And, it, and thankfully it worked out. But during the summer shoot, that was kind of our trial by fire. And I barely passed the trial by fire. Um, there were several moments where I cracked. Uh, like, <laughs> we know those moments. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, and and I specific my wife and I were talking this last night because uh, we were celebrating the five year anniversary of like our last rap day in the summer. Um, but I told her I was like, you know, I remember sitting in your parents' garage, like having a mental breakdown um, because all I could think of were Excel spreadsheets and emails and casting. I mean, it, it was just insane, you know. Um, so there was confidence, but it was probably a little bit of false confidence there. Um, the naivety was definitely there because there was a whole lot I didn't know. But I think there was also this one thing that kind of – so those things are kind of you know, definitely there in my mind. But of course, I'm making gestures with my hands as if you guys can see here. Sorry. Uh, so we'll I saw the last one. That. We'll reenact that later with stick drawings. Um, but pushing those two things forward as if it's like I'm being pushed towards the edge edge of a cliff and that's probably the most apt analogy I can use there was this um this realization of you can't fail mm-hmm. not like a confidence you can't fail it was a you cannot fail right there's no option there's no option failure is not an option if you fail you've let down a lot of people mm-hmm. including yourself um you know my my dad um we, we always tell the story my dad was uh, probably our biggest supporter our biggest fan he was the one who actually helped us get the money to shoot the film my dad died um uh a week or two weeks i think before we were supposed to put out our first casting calls and you know and there was some question there we were if we were actually going to film the movie or not Mm -hmm. um because it was that same summer after dad died Mm -hmm. and uh i remember talking to my mom and she was like you know this was maybe the same day that dad died or the night that the once she was back home she said, you know, we're going to make this movie because your dad was still telling people about it the day that he died. 
you know, like he was telling friends about it. Mm. And so that was that, that was that part that kept pushing. It was like, you can't fail this because if you do all of that was for nothing. And so that's what got us through the summer. And then we were able to kind of, or we, me specifically was able to kind of regroup and realize, okay, now we're going to finish the movie out. What do we need to do differently? And so it's funny is if you actually look at the movie, I personally think the second half of the movie is much stronger because we learned a lot of lessons from the first half. Right. Um, but thankfully the first half was actually the easier half to shoot because there were less people generally involved. Um, and so I think that actually, there were a lot of um, uh, happy circumstances that worked in our favor uh, that I probably would not wish upon anybody, but at the same time they worked for us here. And how many days uh, did you all shoot? Uh, I think it was, so it was July 12th through the 25th in the summer. So what is that about? Uh, two weeks roughly. Yeah. Yeah. About two, almost two and a half weeks. And then we shot, uh, about a week between December, uh, Christmas and, uh, just after we wrapped on January 1st of, uh, new, uh, of, you know, that next year. So it was about about a three week shoot or a little under a three week shoot, I think. Wow, man! <laughs> I, I honestly, I thought you were going to say it was like six months total. That's oh, what yeah. I thought you were going to say. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, no. We, um, I mean, you know, and the thing is, uh, you know, I'm sure your all's days are like this a lot of times too. But you'd start sometimes we get on set at eight a.m. You know, makeup, wardrobe, myself, and you know, sometimes the the camera crew would come in about an hour later because they'd have a slightly later uh, call time but i would there'd be nights where some of us would not leave until you know three o'clock in the morning the next morning you know that you're you're there just to and that's it again it's that whole thing of you can't fail you know so if that means you're there for you know 16 hours then you're there for 16 hours mm-hmm. you know um and i i think we want to do another one we do have a sequel already written um and actually i think it would be i'm actually i think it's a much stronger movie and I was actually pretty happy with the first, but I, there's a lot of things we learn story wise uh, and character wise and everything. And I'm realizing we can't do that again. You know, like again, everybody's the older Indiana Jones. Everybody's, it's like, you can't, you know, some people have kids now and it's like, you can't say, Hey everybody, we're going to sleep nine to a hotel room and you're going to get three hours of sleep a night. You know, like that's just, we call it the summer camp from hell. Uh, we <laughs> that, but it was the most fun summer camp from hell, you know, um, is the way to look at it. Was the was it the plan all along to to separate it into the summer and the winter, or was that just brought about by necessity? Um, it it actually was necessity. Um, we were we were supposed to shoot everything in the summer, um, which looking back on it would have been the worst possible thing we could do uh, mm-hmm. because about two weeks in. Um, so the, the first couple of days, you have no idea what you're doing um, and everybody's kind of like gelling and meshing and, you know, personalities and stuff. The second week or the, the so the first few days we were figuring things out. The next week we were like in our stride. The third that that last half of a week in the summer, we were starting to crack uh, like you've been away from home for a late time. Tensions are flaring up. So our original plan was to shoot everything. We probably would not have had a finished film if we shot it all in the summer. Um, or it would not have been as good of a movie. However, what happened was two weeks before we were supposed to start filming, so like July 1st or something like that, um, 
we find out that the fort that we're shooting at, which is Fort Massac, um, a, a wall collapsed because of all the soil erosion from flooding that they had had that previous spring. And so we get a call and they're like, you know, sorry, nobody's allowed to enter the fort mm. until it's fixed. It's unfortunately still not fixed. There's still a chain link fence around it because it's Illinois budget cut, you know, all this stuff. So um, where I'm going with this is my historical advisor said, look, you know, um, if you give me a month and a, and a bunch of volunteers, I can make you a fort. And uh, I was like, what? And <laughs> we're all thinking, talking like a pillow fort or some you know, junk uh-huh. like that. And so we had to make that decision. We could either call off the production or we could shoot you know, half of it and then hope that we could film in the winter with a new fort. Um, and so it was putting a lot, a lot of faith in a lot of other people uh, and also just fate. You know, it's like I'm hoping that this is the right thing that we're supposed to do. And, you know, it all worked out in the end. But, you know, tell yourself that whenever you're sitting in front of 20 crew members, what are we going to do, guys? You know, like or the other idea was, um, yeah, you know, to call off the production and, you know, hopefully film at another date. And I think everybody realized if we called it off, then we'd never have a movie. You know, that that was the time. So right. once you put the brakes on, it's over. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for people to imagine the amount of pressure that's on you, especially the, the larger the crew. Oh yeah. <laughs> when you're sitting in those moments and, and you're having to make that call, the, the pressure is immense. And a lot of, just for anybody out there that's considering making a feature, um, organization is everything. Oh yeah, very much so. And clearly you have much more so than we did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> to, to think I, you did that in three weeks is insane. Yeah. yeah <laughs> to yeah. us. Uh, I had, um, we had what's called John Gibson handlers. Uh, basically I am not an organized person, but I had a lot of people who would stay on top of me to be an organized person. So it was just like, Hey, uh, we, you know, I had a really good assistant director as well. Uh, Tim McDaniel, uh, who actually works out in LA now on a lot of different like HBO shows and productions and stuff. This was his first feature that he worked on and he was a former student of mine. And, um, he helped a lot as far as organization goes. Like, so there would be times where he and my wife would be calling ahead to like hotels and getting food and like all this other stuff so that I didn't have to worry about those kinds of things. Um, and that was like insanely helpful. Um, you know, I'll say too, you're talking about the pressure and, and, you know, the crew and everything. Um, I liken the experience. I've fortunately never been involved in war. Um, I, I hope I'm never involved in, you know, everything else. Um, and, I liken it, though, to everything I've read as far as we make the analogy. When you're doing a film like this, um, you're preparing for war. As in, like, you have to constantly think about where supply is going to be coming from, where are you sleeping, what morale, um, the things that you know and the things that you don't know. Like, I know what challenges I'm going to face in some areas, but then for all I know, there's going to be other things that pop up that I never knew about. So do I have a strong enough team to combat that? you know, when it happens and also knowing like when to kind of fall back on certain things. So like you start to push your, your crew too much in one day, then maybe you say, Hey, we can save these pickups or these shots for another night. Let's, let's all go home and and drink some beer. And there was a lot of that too. Like, you know, at the end of the night, it's like, let's grab some cheap beer and just drink, you know, and and I get drunk, but you know, have a couple beers, have some smoke, some cigars on the hotel patio, you know, something like that just to kind of ease the tension, 
you know, um, and, and so that was, that's probably like the most apt analogy I can think of, um, is that you're, you are a, a commander, mm-hmm. you know, preparing for that kind of thing. And to do it, to do it indie style like this, it's also almost necessary to hold your crew captive like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, you gotta, well, you hold them captive because, you know, you hope like, Hey, they're not going to abandon the project. Uh-huh. And, and what I found, and, you know, especially with you three working with history, have you all, do you all have like another like core group of folks that you all also work with? Or is it <laughs> primarily, primarily almost always you three working together? It's the other split personalities that <laughs> reside yeah. in our bodies. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. us three and whatever family members don't have an activity that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you know, you, you got to hope that everybody believes in whatever you're working on too. You know, you can't, um, I mean, if you guys are doing something comical or, you know, whatever, you got to hope that everybody else is going to buy into mm-hmm. what the project's going to be, that they're going to, they're going to get the humor. They're going to see your vision. Um, if not, they're not going to want to like be held captive for eight to 10 hours working on scenes. Um, you know, and a lot of that happened with this too. I mean, I, I was very fortunate in that, Oh, so many of the people, really all the people that worked on the project, even down to some of uh, some of the extras. I mean, I still hear from people to this day who are like, "It was so amazing to work on that." I I felt like such a connection to what you guys were doing, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, and and you know, maybe that's another part of what I always hope will be my a successful goal will be to always have people be able to say that and not have them say, uh, "I." effing hated working on that you know so like i don't know why i just censored myself there i'm like i don't know they can always bleep this out so you shot this in sequence uh yeah i mean we we um we changed up you know we didn't shoot every scene in sequence but once we actually i think once we got to the fort the winter shoot a lot of stuff actually was very sequential um and then we i had a really good continuity guy uh nick monger um who he was a former student of mine as well uh, he would um, he would be, he would sit there with his digital camera and his iPad, and between every scene, you know, he'd take photos of everything everybody was wearing. I mean, we had it down to dirt specks on preacher's mm-hmm. outfit had to be reproduced. <laughs> like we had three preacher shirts, two Marshall shirts. Um, I can't remember what else. We had several like versions of clothing, so that if something got dirty, it could be washed while we were using the other one. Um, I had a guy. That's all he did was photos and iPad stuff, and watched the entire scene, and you know, refilled the uh, the shot glass if a character was drinking, and you know, all that stuff. Yeah, n- wow. Nobody can say enough about how valuable a script supervisor is. Oh yeah. No matter how small your crew is, like that is becoming more and more obvious to us that it's essential. Mm-hmm. Well, you're you guys are you're you're so focused on everything that's happening in front of the camera right. and performances, and and if you're directing, you're putting out eighty thousand other fires that have nothing to do with actors, that have nothing to do with the film. It's like other stuff going on that you lose sight of the little things like that. You know, and so having somebody that that's all they do, it's really, really helpful. What was your all's budget? Can I ask? Um, we had a budget of about um, 34000 roughly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's impressive what you did with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, it was, I will say uh, we made it stretch um, because a lot of people donated their time, their equipment, um, their horses. Uh, the western towns we shot in were already pre-built. You know, so there wasn't a lot we had to do there. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that, uh, I mean, it really should have cost a lot more, but a lot mm-hmm. of people were incredibly generous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's where I'm always like, I, 
our thank yous and the credits are like 90,000. <laughs> right. It's like, it's, and that's the least I can do. Yeah. It's the only way. How, how many people did you have to pay anybody cast or crew? Um, there were a few folks who like, once I was chatting with them, I'm like, you know, what's it going to take to get you to work on this? And they would say things like, you know, oh, I just, I just want to do it for fun or, you know, whatever. And then some people <laughs> would say things like, some people would say like, I want to work on it, but I got to pay my rent for the okay. month. Okay. And so I'd be like, okay, well I, I can't pay you an actual like living wage, but I can give you some money towards your rent for the month, you know, so that like if they're with me for the entire month of July, they're losing that income from their full-time job or, you know, and then some people just took vacation mm -hmm. and worked on out on their vacation. So, um, you know, little things like that. It, it really just kind of was, it depended on what it was and what the needs were. Can we get some names and numbers? <laughs> some of these people. That... <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, uh, well, if they'll still talk to me, then <laughs> now revelation trail has national distribution. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't feel like a lot of people know, how distribution works and, and, and the first thing about how to secure it, take us through, uh, in, in simple terms quickly, I guess, how distribution developed for you. Sure. Uh, well, when we, when we saw you guys, uh, at river's edge, I, I referred to it as our three prong approach to things. Um, we were trying to get distribution. We were not at river's edge, but you know, we were trying during that time we were trying to get distribution and actually fun fact, um, we had already made contact with our distributor there and we're going kind of back and forth on stuff, but I wasn't at liberty to actually talk about it. So it was one of those things where like we were, we were trying to get distribution. So we were essentially what I call uh, cold calling in many cases. So it's kind of like when you're applying for jobs right after college and you're sending out 900 resumes and you might hear back from three people. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we were doing. We were sending out, screeners and press releases and whatever to all of these different distributors who we had kind of culled down. Like we weren't sending them to Paramount or, you know, something like that, but we were, we realized there were certain distributors who might be more friendly to our kind of film. Right. And so we were trying to reach those who you might've been a fit for. Exactly. So, and then in the middle was the film festival route. So we were trying to get it out to several festivals so that we could kind of get audience exposure and then there was also the third prong was sending it to uh, critical like critic sites to try to get advanced reviews of the film. And really it was going to kind of come down to whatever kind of had the most success first. And um, we, we had not very good success at festivals. Um, we had pretty good like critical success in terms of, you know, once people got into the story and, and, and stuff. And then, um, Eventually, we, we signed with our distributor, which was uh, E1 Entertainment or Entertainment One. Um, and they're the ones who handle like the North America or the international distribution for titles like The Walking Dead and um, Breaking Bad and like some other things. Um, so, you know, and, and other projects as well. But so that was kind of cool. It was like, whoa, this is actually kind of a big you know, <laughs> right. company that, that likes our film, you know? Yeah, very cool. Um, I can only imagine. Yeah, but yeah. it's well here is the deal i will say this um you definitely and you know I, I can't always get into the all the contractual details but i can tell you this um distribution has both its good and bad sides absolutely uh, and and i think it's there definitely was good i mean it was one of those things where i'm like whoa this is awesome this we call it our calling our uh calling card movie because it was like you know, people would joke that I actually had some students ask if I was going to retire from teaching. Um, and I'm like, ah, yeah, no, no, not at all. This is not how that works. But 
having a film distributed at least gave us a little bit more kind of um, credentials, I guess, yeah. as we start to think about other projects. It's like, well, you know, this sold. Um, the the drawback is you, you do give up a lot of rights. And we we had to give up artwork rights to the DVD. And I, I'm, I am not particularly uh, – how do I, I put I, – I don't feel that the DVD artwork accurately represents the movie. If that makes sense. Um, but that's what you do. You know, like that's where the distributor says this is what's going to sell more copies. So we'll do this. Right. And Todd, um, you liked the original artwork that John had at the festival, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah like the gun yeah. and the cross. And yeah. And yeah. I think the comment there was that was too dark. Um, and so they and so what they did was went with something that had like a zombie and a cowboy hat on the front of it. Uh, and I, I that's yeah, it a, looks like Tom Sizemore, actually. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Oh, I never thought about that. Kind of <laughs> well, well, rotting flesh, Tom yeah, Sizemore. Rotting flesh. Well, well, it looks like Tom Sizemore. No. Yeah. Um, anyway, the, uh, <laughs> but if you go, I always tell people, I'm like, if you go on like Amazon or something like that uh, and you look at the uh, the prime version of the movie, like the digital download. Uh, there's some that looks like it's like hand-drawn uh, digital artwork. That was actually created for, by my friend Blake Armstrong, who does a lot in the style of Drew uh, Struzan, who did all like 1980s posters and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's what he does now is movie posters. Um, and he works for a company that did, like he did the international version of the of Ghostbusters, um, like their poster wow. and all that. So. Because Drew is retired, right? Yeah, well, and that's what I think he, I mean, if, if he were to, I think he would lose his mind if somebody were to be like, hey, we need you to do the next Star Wars post. Sure, <laughs> sure. Whatever. But he, um, I guess what I'm saying is that was one of those kind of give and takes where it's like, well, okay, I'm going to let you do certain things because you're going to let me do certain things, you right. know, and then you just go back and forth on stuff. And eventually you just have to realize like you're the small independent producer and this is the giant movie company that does this, like, and they could easily just say, nah, we're not going to, you know, we're going to pass. And so you, you know, you just kind of have to reach a middle. Um, at one point, one of the biggest scares I had was that they were wanting to have the rights to rename the film mm. if they needed to. Because when it comes to retail, it's all done alphabetically. Okay. And if you think about it, R is going to put you very low on the shelf. And so they wanted that flexibility to be able to give it a new name. Well, the problem was we'd already branded everything. We spent three years branding Revelation Trail, you know, and it was like, well, that's what people know it as. Mm-hmm. That's what review sites know it as, you know. So anyway, it was a, like I said, it was a, it was an ordeal. It was definitely a, an eye opening process. So let's say somebody out there is on the doorstep of making a feature film. Uh huh. What would you tell them they need to do before they ever shoot a frame? What is going to help them on the back end? They need to make sure they have their ducks in a row. Sure. Um, one, I think, uh, I hope you've been a really good person to a lot of people all along. I mean, I, I really <laughs> do. Like, yeah. I, hope, yeah. I, I mean, I hope you're not a jerk. And then suddenly it's like, hey, I want everybody to work on this project. You know, I mean, so hopefully you've already kind of cobbled together a group of people who enjoy your presence and hopefully have different skills. Um, and then also making sure other people believe in whatever project you're going to do. I mean, now, now if you, I mean, if you're going to have like $300,000 to blow, you can fudge some of that a little bit, you know, but you guys know filmmaking is all about being around people that you want to be around. Uh, even if you're getting paid or not getting paid and it's about not being around people that you hate, um, because those are going to be long days and stuff. So one, my, my first piece of advice is make sure you're going to be able to cultivate a good environment 
with people that you want to be around and who believe in your project. I think the other thing is just realizing that it's going to, I don't care if it's probably a, a feature comedy, if it's a feature Western, you know, whatever, it's going to take its toll on you. Mm-hmm. And you will, you will definitely have a lot of stresses. Um, you know, I, I, even if I had taken on just one role, even if I was just director and I hadn't been anything else as far as the, the film goes, I would have had a lot of stress. Um, my DPs had stress, my lighting team had, you know, so all that stuff's going to exist. So I think that's the other part you need to realize that all that's going to happen. So whatever you could kind of be doing to prepare for that, you know, don't, don't schedule an 18 hour day followed by a 20 hour day followed by, you know, make sure you allow a day of just downtime in the middle of all of it, you know, so that people can kind of re re energize, you know, little things like that. Would you recommend that somebody produce a couple shorts just for time management's sake? Uh-huh. It's pretty important. I think so. Uh, definitely produce some shorts. I and you know, so I did Revelation Trail, and I really hadn't had a chance to do anything else other than writing until the summer. And I went back and produced a short. I forgot how much fun a short is, as far as producing goes, and as far as like really creating, because it's a very manageable amount of time. Generally, it's like you know what we're dealing with a two day shoot or a weekend shoot. I think doing as much of those as you can is perfect. I also think learning from as many mistakes, like yeah, get bummed out about mistakes, but also use it as a learning tool. Like there's so many things I made mistakes on, on revelation trail that I learned from that. I'm like, now I, I actually use that for the short this summer, the things that I made mistakes on with the feature and it made the production go insanely better. You know, things like, Hey, you should probably have a shot list. Hey, you should probably have storyboards for some things. All of these things that I didn't do in the summer shoot that I later did for the winter shoot, and now I do for like every production. Um, and it just it's it's the organization part that makes it makes it so much easier. That was one thing I was going to ask you, and about what you would do differently. Um, yeah. What about what about rights and releases and and that sort of thing? That I am a paranoid mofo when it comes to rights and stuff like that absolutely so yeah and so you know releases we just had your standard like film releases and everything that we used uh in hindsight what i would have also done and i'm going to do this if i do another feature is i would get every person on camera saying their name and saying and and having them read a standard prompt of you know i'm john gibson i'm working on revelation trail by you know living in productions and you have the right to use my name my likeness uh for any media uh, that you see fit for this film, you know, something like that. The reason being there were times where I freaked out because I thought I couldn't find. Right. Lost the paper. Yep. I'd mm-hmm. lost the paper and I'm like, oh, uh, uh. <laughs> that's one of those things where I'm like, oh, that's something I learned. Um, but also when it came to rights management, um, that's a big thing that I take to my students now. And like when you start getting into my upper level classes, I do not allow you to use anything you don't have the rights to. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, you can use Creative Commons music, you can use, you know, whatever, but you have to have the rights to it. You have to, if you have to get proper credit for things. And so I learned, a, we, there were a few things where I'd be working, I'd be talking to my sound guy and I'd be like, hey, where did we get that sound effect? And he's like, oh, I pulled it from the BBC sound effects library, <laughs> right. blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh god, I already spent <laughs> uh, whatever. And I, I spent, I think, one spent four hundred dollars to get one sound effect. Oh my goodness! Oh my because, goodness! Now here's the thing: I now have that sound effects library for whatever, but because I was so paranoid that somebody was, because you have so right. much like content recognition system stuff now, I was so paranoid that somebody was going to flag that and say, 
I need to see the documentation that you have the rights to that. Um, and, and that could have torpedoed the whole project if in distribution, if right. I didn't have that. Because so, um, nothing, and nothing would be worse if you get to, to the point and somebody wants it and then they're like, okay, give us all your stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you have to give, uh, it's called a, um, there's the chain of title, which basically proves that I am the one who legally owns the rights and this is where it came from and et cetera, et cetera. We paid, I can't remember how much money to a lawyer to give us a clearance letter, basically saying he reviewed all of our documentation and stuff and he saw no problems. Then that goes on to, um, errors and emissions insurance, which I think ran us about $2,800. Um, and then we then, after all that, during all this whole process, so we're, we're dealing with rights and all that. I also had to get the film, rev- uh, I had to get a rating for the film. For through the MPAA? For the MPAA. So I had which to get the Which is not cheap. Yeah, no, it's not. It was $5,000. Holy <laughs> <crap>. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so it's one of those things where it's like, oh my God. God. Right. And you know, you're looking at this and it's like, well, where the hell is that's all in that 34,000? It wasn't. We actually, mm. I spent probably another 10 afterwards oh, with man. all this stuff. Yeah, you just oh, blow I, any, you just blew any uh, budget we've ever had out of the water just oh, on that stuff. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's what, and, and that's the thing is like the short film I shot this week or this, this past month, I think we spent about uh, $300 and that was on food. Literally, it was <laughs> on food and, and a few other minor things. And so, how I got the ten thousand? I mean, I was very fortunate that my mom is had savings because I was like, "Mom, um, can we borrow?" Actually, I think it was closer to like seventy eight hundred is what I borrowed. I was like, "Mom, can I borrow seventy eight hundred dollars, and then when we get the money that's due to us for this movie, I'll pay you back." So I had to actually take a loan out from my mom to pay for a rating certificate that I could tell you within the first 30 seconds of the movie what the rating was going to be. I'm like, yeah, we're R. We don't even have a cold open. We're an, we're an R-rated movie. You right. know, that's the that's the thing. So, Are you in the black after all that through through distribution? Have, has this thing started paying you back? Uh, no, it hasn't. We uh, we, we got the advance, um, which is similar to how a book advance works. You know, they, they say, like, here's your advance, and then you use that to pay back your investors, to pay anybody that I was like, hey, um, right. I, I can't pay you now, but I can pay you a little bit later. Um, I, I pay all those people and stuff. Right. And then from that point on, you're supposed to be able to get more money if the movie makes money, but it's all net proceeds. And and this is just common knowledge in filmmaking distribution. At least everything I've read is that net, you're never going to see net mm-hmm. if you're a filmmaker. Um, because the distributor or the production company or the studio or whatever will always be able to count losses against whatever they've given you. And so, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, well, yeah, we spent, um, I don't know, I'm just making up numbers now, but it's like, oh, we spent $10,000 on, uh, artwork and, you know, whatever. So you have to make at least (laughs) 10,000 before that's recouped. Well, you're not going to make that, but you know, you'll never make that back. Um, and that, which is okay though, you know, you, as long as you go into it, knowing that that's, that's fine, yeah. you know? And I think that's for a brief slight moment, I was like, <laughs> Oh, maybe we'll make it right. <laughs> and it was like, no, no, you're not just look at the positive here. Then you got a movie distributed, you know, I learned a lot. It's something I can talk to my students about because I can tell them war stories mm-hmm. and they, it, it adds a little weight to the stuff I'm teaching. Um, 
but then that's it. Like that's what the movie gave me. And so now I'll, you know, work on other things and hope hope knows no bounds. It's amazing sometimes. Oh yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, I mean, that's a little bit, that was kind of the eye opening stuff about distribution, you know, is actually starting to see what contracts actually say Mm -hmm. and all the different things that you as a filmmaker that I was very glad I was paranoid about early on. Because in my short film college days, I would have used all the copywritten music in the world. I would have used <laughs> right. sound effect, you know, all this stuff. And then I, I would have been screwed royally <laughs> with this. Yeah. Two subjects left. Sure. Um, and the first is I'm going to talk to John, the teacher. Oh, he's a, he's a terrible teacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, tell us uh, real quickly, uh, what's some of the subject material that you teach? What, what are some of the classes that you teach? So uh, I teach primarily, I guess there's a couple of different sections but or, or subjects, but um, my, my first and foremost like favorite is something called media aesthetics. Um, it's, a, it's an entry level class um, that's more about like the use of like light and color and sound and editing and all that to um, not only how can you use all these things as a media creator to impact your audience or to affect your audience, but how do you as an audience respond to those things? So it's a, like a little bit of like media literacy, a little bit of media production. Um, and because it's an entry level class, I get a lot of students who decide this is what they want their major to be, or this is not what they want their major to be. You know, it's a very much a, uh, a defining point for students in our college career. So there's that. That's kind of one of my areas is, is media aesthetics. I teach a bit in writing as well, um, kind of survey writing. So like a little bit of script writing, a little bit of uh, commercials, PSAs, promotional writing, you know, things like that. Um, and then I do uh, field production, both new style field production and um, like fictional uh, production as well, like single camera production. Um, so it's kind of, I, I dabble in all those areas. Um, although I think the media aesthetics is where I gravitate towards the most mm-hmm. fun to get into that stuff. It really is. And we, I teach some, I teach in something called the digitorium, which is like this, uh, <laughs> well, see, I know it's, it's amazing. Like, the I know. Digitorium. It, uh, <laughs> it's like a, I can't remember the exact dimensions, but I always tell people, I'm like, it's like teaching in front of a movie theater, uh-huh. uh, because you have a giant screen behind you that um and then an auditorium of like 80 students that I and I team teach with another professor and we have pretty good chemistry so we're always kind of cutting up and you know back and forth and telling stories and stuff but it's awesome because every time there's a new Star Wars trailer uh or like some new cool like Marvel trailer or something I'll right. be like and we're just going to watch this real quick <laughs> and we'll talk about it for the next 10 minutes yeah. but we're going to talk about it in the context of the class mm. you know yeah. so how did they use editing here how did they use sound you know or whatever right. um and so it's awesome it's for like the next 6 years because of all the Star Wars movies I'm always going to have trailers to show in there every time they get released so yeah there's a part of me that would love to do that uh, uh, is the teacher you co-teach with does his name happen to be Mr. Megorium? No, it is not. But wouldn't that be awesome? That would, with it would be with the Wonder Digitorium. Mr. Megorium's Wonder Digitorium. <laughs> so uh, if a 17-year-old comes to you, uh-huh. and or let's say 16, and, and he knows he wants to make movies as a career, mm-hmm. he doesn't know what to do. Let's even specify it, especially to somebody who, a kid that lives in Kentucky. Okay. Or some other state where... Um, there's no accredited film school. Sure. And he just says, I want to do this. How do I get started? How do I get started? What, sure. what would be your 
suggestion as like, you know, to point him in the right direction of becoming a professional in filmmaking? Well, one, I would be to ask, you know, obviously why, like, why do you want to do this? Mm. And if, you know, there's certain things that would be kind of dead giveaways to be like, well, maybe you should rethink this. So if he says something like, I want to be rich and famous like Spielberg, then it might be like, well, that's cool. That's a good long-term goal, but realize there's going to be a huge chasm before you get to that point. If you get to that point, you know, um, is that there's going to be a lot of like turmoil and stuff that you have to do, and a lot of being poor before you get to the rich and famous part. You know, um, so uh, hopefully the why is something more like I want to tell stories, mm-hmm. I want to entertain, I like to create, I'm an artist. You know, any number of things like that. Because then I might talk to that person and try to like hone it down, fine tune it a little bit where it's like, okay, well, do you like photography? Do you like, do you like telling jokes or do you like entertaining people with stories more? So then you could actually maybe start to say like, well, you know, um, you should really consider uh, writing or uh, photography or, you know, like video uh, photography. The biggest thing though that I would say though to that person is if this is what you want to do, that's awesome work on short projects, whether that means your own stuff or ideally before you even do your own stuff, try to work with somebody else. Try to work with the, you know, the soft, uh, the walk softly guys, you know, try to work with the, the other, um, folks in your area who are wanting to make short films because you'll learn a lot more from that than you'll learn from me telling you stuff in a classroom. Um, I mean, and, and I can safely say that, like, you'll learn a lot in the classroom, but you're going to learn even more actually being there in that environment and figuring out how to do some stuff. Um, and then, and so really that would be it. That, that would probably be my biggest advice is find other people like you and then try to get on their sets and then eventually work your way to, to doing your own thing. And then realizing that, you know, eventually you can be that big famous director you can be that you know famous dp but you got to put in your time for it um you know roger deakins doesn't didn't become you know didn't become awesome overnight you know he had to practice a lot to get to where he was and so and and i'm not going to give sorry this i hope this doesn't come off as a shameless plug i mean i know there's other great media schools uh murray state for example i i know i had an awesome or has an awesome media program and everything else and you know northern kentucky has a great one um asbury so Asbury, oh yeah, Asbury is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, and I, I'm sure there's other schools. Um, and I, I find that that's another thing too, is if you're interested in it, if you're 16, 17, don't feel like you got to break the bank to do this. Right. One, it's do it, you know, like we just said, meet other folks and get into it. But also look at something like uh, a Murray State, uh, a Northern Kentucky, uh, and I don't know how – I don't know how Asbury fares in terms of tuition and all that, but, you know, look at some of these other institutions that are close to you Mm -hmm. and say, you know what, I'm going to go there and I'm going to do stuff. Like, I'm not just going to like go there and sit in a class and listen to my teachers tell me things. I'm going to actually make the most of it and use the free gear that I get, use the, you know, all the lighting, the classes and stuff and actually make my own work. Um, I have a, I told you before, my AD lives out in LA now and, uh, I ask him sometimes, or I've asked him before. I'm like, so Tim, um, did you, do you think it was worth it that you went to school before you went out to LA? Um, because I've had friends who've gone to LA who never graduated from college. They just went out there after high school and lived on couches. And then now they work professionally out there. 
And Tim said, you know, the advantage of doing something at like an NKU or a, or a Murray State or something like that is that you have freedom to make mistakes and it doesn't hurt you. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you make a mistake on a class project, you make a mistake on a class project, big deal. You make a mistake on a set, you make a mistake on a set, you know, like mm-hmm. people know that, you know. And so that's definitely something to kind of consider as well. And I think it totally depends on the individual. Mm-hmm. Um there might be kids like if I would say if a kid is really mature and ready to go yeah. out there and tackle it, then absolutely oh, yeah, yeah. do it. But if, if not, there's a Yeah. If you're not there yet, if, if you need some, like you said, some room to make mistakes and, and to grow socially and, and these things, then by all means, you know, that's where school is going to help you. Yeah. And I think also too, is, you know, you really need to look into whatever program, you're going to do, you know, some, some places are going to cater more to filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Some are going to cater more to, uh, journalism, news style production. And then some are going to be kind of like your a la carte for the most part, where you can dabble in this, you can dabble in that, you know? And I think the other thing too is, uh, and I, and I tell my students this a lot. One, when you get into school, uh, know that grades mean nothing outside of school. So nobody cares what you made in your production class. If you made a C or a be an A, whatever. They want to know what you can do. Right. So uh, focus on making good work. And then naturally the grades are going to follow. But focus on making something that's really good for the audience. Um, but uh, two, um, oh my God, I can't remember what two was going to be. I'm sure it was something <laughs> important. Uh, uh, that's terrible advice, student. So, uh, You're ruining sure, lives right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm sure it also had something to do about the, the fact that it's like, you know, the great thing about college and, 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 you know, kind of like a broader uh, education when it comes to filmmaking is, is exactly that. I mean, I told you guys I was a history major, but I wanted to do film, you know, like it, it was just something I did on kind of on the side. Well, I still use my history major for so much. Sure. Um, the, the, the alternate, the, uh, the TV series I was telling you about is an alternate history TV series. And so I will be using a lot of my research skills, my primary versus secondary sources, any, it, things from classes, I'll be using that for this project. And so, like, that's kind of nice, too, is being able to go to, like, a, a state school that has a media program and say, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to major in whatever their media program is, but I'm also going to major in political science or minor in political science or theater or, you know, any number of things like that. You, you ideally kind of broaden your skills. You exactly. broaden your uh, worldview, so to speak. Yeah, that's. I think that's what's most important about it. It just exposes you to so much that you might yes. not otherwise. That's it. So um, it exposes you to so much that also might have other stories to tell. Like there might be something in a, psych- a psychology class that you're like, whoa, uh, Phineas Gage, I think was a guy that I learned about in psychology years and years ago. And that was like, if I recall, it's the guy that was working on like a railroad track and like a spike went through his head. Right. And if it had gone like uh, two centimeters over, it would have killed him. But instead it slid like perfectly through part of his brain. And so people were so like – it like severed something. And so it caused them to have like personality issues. And so where I'm going with this is like, I know kind of half ass the story of Phineas Gage. I think that's who it was. Regardless where I'm going is you might find something in a, in a class that you're like, whoa, that could actually make for a really cool story. And that was something in my, uh, that was an elective for my minor, you know, something like that. So, right. Who knows where inspiration is going to come. Exactly. Exactly. And I only had like three, three or four film quote unquote classes at the university of Kentucky. And it was in through the English department. And Mm -hmm. those exposed me to stuff that I would have never touched. They made me watch Chaplin. They made me watch Kurosawa and I just wouldn't have touched it otherwise. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and that's 
you know, and that's the that's the thing too. You know, is um, we've got a cinema studies minor, and that's through the that's through the English department actually. And so I'll get a lot of students who are like cinema studies, electronic media, because what they get in one program and then our program and then they kind of, you know, they are exposed to things like what you just said. Like, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to ramble on about stuff, but I agree 100 percent with what you're saying there. So. All right. Last bit. I've got some quick sure. hitters. Can for I say you. something real quick and just no, throw something nope, in? No. Nope. Back up. <laughs> uh Speaking of the spike and the the brain thing, uh, uh-huh. David O. Russell actually directed a movie um, that uh, kind of kind of fell between the cracks. It's got Jessica Biel in it, and she okay. gets uh, she gets shot in the head That's with right, a nail right, gun, yeah. um, and turns into a nympho. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, that happens. That's the that's the short log line. Um, but anyway, so just, just so you know, it, it's, so that rubbed off, Phineas rubbed off somewhere down the road. I am totally, and I'm on Wikipedia right now, so I'm still listening to you guys. I'm totally called Accidental Love, I believe is the name of it. Uh, I'm going to find out if, uh, Phineas Gage is a real person or if I'm just imagining. (laughs) So, uh, I can still answer your, uh, your, your, your quick ones though. Yes. Rapid fire. We've got some, uh, based on stuff we've talked about here on the show, Okay. Uh, you're a huge Star Wars guy. I am. Yes. Best Star Wars movie. Empire Strikes Back. Although, if you can, uh, if we can count it as a movie, I would say the Clone Wars in its entirety is a close second. Okay. I love wow. Clone Wars. Not. I'm sorry. Not the Attack of the Clone. I want to be very specific. Not Attack of the Clone. <laughs> yeah. The right. cl- animated series. So. Yes. Your least favorite Star Wars movie. Uh, least favorite. Oh man. Uh, um. I, I know it's cliche, but I gotta go with either. Um, I probably have to go with Phantom Menace on this one. Oh, uh, really? I, I, although what's funny is I went back and rewatched Return of the Jedi after um, having watched uh, uh, Force Awakens, uh-huh. um, and which I love by the way. But uh, and and I found myself not liking Return of the Jedi as much as I used to. I used to Return of the Jedi used to be my favorite, followed by Empire when I was a kid. Or no, Return Star Wars. And then Empire, because I hated the fact that Empire, it's not a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And as I've gotten older, Empire is my favorite, and Return mm-hmm. has actually slipped down quite a bit because you can totally tell that Harrison Ford is phoning it in <laughs> the last half, half of the movie. <laughs> like, there's several things that it's like, oh, this is kind of rough in places. Yeah, that's interesting because the, the prequels, I actually I think I like uh, Phantom Menace the best solely based on. The uh, duel of the fates scene. Yo, and that's such a oh god, it's such a good yeah, scene. It's I mean, unbelievable. I mean, it was a great scene, and you know, I a lot of people loved the pod racing scene. Oh, I wasn't no. a big fan. Of, the pod racing scene went on way too yeah. damn long. And it was it, like, all right, okay. It's it, kind of like NASCAR. I don't really like NASCAR because you're just going around in like circles or whatever. Right. And it's kind of the same way with pod racing. It's like, okay, you're just going around in circles now. Okay, yeah. except now you're gonna like throw something at this person. Okay. Yeah. Right. Cool. There, there are people that just love a visual spectacle, and I yeah, think that's where, exactly. yeah, I think that's where that comes in. But yeah, anything that has to do with Anakin in any of the three movies, yeah, ditch it. Um, <laughs> or as he was known in those honestly, three movies, Mannequin Skywalker. <laughs> in the first three, he was known as Mannequin Skywalker, <laughs> and I get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing, and that's what's so weird about the Clone Wars. I actually gave a shit about Anakin. Again, in the Clone Wars cartoon, because the it was such a 
better written character mm-hmm. and the actor like i i liked hayden christensen but the actor who played him in the series was like a thousand times better and it was just weird that i'm like wow how could something so awesome come from george lucas sucking so bad <laughs> yeah and there are there are actors that need more from their directors like i don't think i don't know if hayden christensen is a bad actor but i know he didn't get what he needed from lucas no, even no. close well, go back and watch the blocking in some of those movies too. <laughs> right. Like even like little things or like Palpatine, uh, Ian McDimmer, I can't remember his name, but like whenever he first does his whole like rise Lord, Vader, <laughs> yeah. and he puts his hood over and he starts to walk. I remember watching that scene like last year and realizing, man, that's really clunky. Like yeah. the way you have him walking. And, and so if your blocking is already clunky, the performance is going to be kind of, you know, it was just little things like that, that I, like I gained, I guess, a different kind of perspective on. Right. So. I think Lucas is a great world builder, and, yeah, yeah. but yeah. it says something that for all of us, Empire is the best movie. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. Um, okay. Next question. Which JJ reinvigoration of a franchise is more impressive to you, Star Trek or Star Wars? Ooh, um, I, I will probably say Star Wars, although uh, the first Star Trek, the 2009 one, I loved. It's great. Um, I, I, oh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a beautiful film. And actually, the second one I wasn't as much of a big fan of. And then the third one I haven't seen. I'll probably wait till it's on DVD. You know, that's mostly because of kids now. Like, I don't really I have to be very selective with what we go to see in the theater mm-hmm. um, because we don't have time anymore. But I. I just love the hell out of the new Star Wars film. Um, I mean, I know there's some repetition from episode, you know, four from Star Wars and stuff. But I also, when I watched it a second time and a third time, I kind of consciously tried to think about that. I'm like, okay, what are the similarities? How similar is it? Mm -hmm. And I really found myself saying, like, we're kind of grasping in places for similarities. Like, some of this is, yeah, it's homage. Some of it is uh, very clearly a similarity. But then at other times, I'm like, well, it's it puts you in that environment, but it's a completely different take on certain things. Um, So I I would definitely go with J.J.'s Star Wars more than anything. Okay. Titanic, yes or no? Um, I, uh, I liked Titanic. Uh, but I also, it's one of those movies that I'm like, ah, I like that I saw it, <laughs> but it's not, I don't rank it up there as like one of my all time favorites, you know, like yeah, yeah. I, there's, especially I, I had a chance to see it for free in 3d and it was pretty damn impressive. I will give Cameron, like, I like Cameron a lot, um, especially for aliens and Terminator and stuff like that. The man can do 3d very well. And I know that that wasn't shot in 3d. But the post conversion on it was amazing in some places. Yeah, technically, I don't think there's anything he can't do, and that, that's where that oh. that conversation came from. The question comes from is because we had a big conversation about Cameron a yeah. couple of episodes ago. Let me He's say a, this. Let me say this about about the 3D. It wouldn't surprise me if he went back and secretly shot everything in 3D again <laughs> oh, and just matched yeah. it to the original. That's no, what he did. Could imagine? Could you imagine aliens in 3D? Mm. Like, uh like they're bursting through the uh, the air shafts and things yeah. like that it would be insane yeah it really would uh next it's a wonderful life yes or no uh i i tear up every time at the uh, <laughs> uh what is it what's the line uh what, he's, he's looking at the note and it says remember no man what is it what's the no man is poor who has friends or whatever that that's um, right yeah uh i'm paraphrasing oh my god i'm like uh, uh and, and i can always tell you that that is going to be the the facebook status that i post every time i watch that film uh, um and it was also one of those that i never watched for the longest time you know it was like you kind of knew it through pop culture but you didn't have to really watch it 
And then when I finally sat down and watched it, I'm like, okay, I could, I, I, it, it might have some hokiness to it, but I see why this is a classic. Have you ever met a man that hates the movie? Um, why I have met many communists in my life. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I actually, I, I don't think I've met anybody who hates it. Um, but you know, I, I, here's the thing. I also hated, uh, gone with the wind. So it's kind of one of those things where I can get why some people might hate something that everybody else is like, it is a, it's a classic. How can you hate this movie? And I'm like, well, I, I, I really didn't like Scarlett O'Hara and gone with the wind. And if I, if that's the character I'm supposed to like be behind the entire time, <laughs> then, you know, I don't really, I don't really like this movie. So anyway, if, uh, if anybody ever asked you that question again, whether you've met anybody that hates it's a wonderful life, you can now, uh, unequivocally answer yes you have oh really, oh, really? I, I hate it oh man why is I that? hate it I, it is like I, I just I railed on this in the last episode so I won't get into it too much but to me a Christmas movie about suicide is the worst oh it was just the most de- like Christmas is a time for happy and joy I think like I have bad any negative feelings I have from Christmas just spawn from that movie. So, so what you're saying is your favorite scene in Gremlins is whenever uh, what's her name oh, uh, is talking about her, her father oh, who gets yeah. stuck in the chimney. Yeah, and smelling and the smell uh, yeah. Yeah. from the chimney. We need more Phoebe Cates. Yeah, <laughs> Phoebe Cates. That's who it was. I was trying to think who it was. Yeah, so, and then uh, the climax of the movie is okay. He didn't commit suicide, so he gets to back go back to his life where. It was so bad it made him want to commit suicide. Like that's that's the payoff. Yes, but it's so bad. But everybody kind of comes in at the end, and you realize, that's oh, there is more worth. Like there is, uh, what is it? Life is worth more than your own like short-sighted kind of impulses. I guess I don't know that there's like other people that you affect, uh, and and I think that's part of the you know when it comes to like Chris. I mean, obviously, there's many things behind Christmas. There's you know. Know, uh, you know, Christianity, there's Santa, you know, how whatever secular or religious you want to look at. But there is also that that whole thing with like that time of year being where you kind of reflect on life itself, hopefully. Well, you know, you're kind of like wrapping up the year. You've got the new year coming. And so you kind of have the the character of, of George. Is it, I'm trying to remember, was it George? George was Bailey. The, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, George Bailey. It's a, so you've got the character of George Bailey who's kind of like realizing what is most important. It's not the fact that, oh, sh- I, I lost all this money. It's that like, oh no, my family is actually most important. The community that I've you know helped build, and then oh yeah, it just so happens all that comes back to help them out later. You know, so I think for me that's the I guess the it is weird now that you put it that yeah it is a suicide film, but then again, or it's a film about suicide. But I think that's the the part you pull back to that actually makes it kind of fit into that time of year. That it would be a really weird film if it was like the summer. You know, um, but then again, I also consider Die Hard my favorite Christmas movie of all time. So it kind of I'm weird when it comes to Christmas movies. Die Hard's on my Christmas list. Yeah. Christmas oh, yeah. Die Hard, Scrooge, Die Hard, Scrooge. All those movies are great. Absolutely. You got to wonder, though, if George Bailey, I mean, you know, he must have been really, really far down in the abyss to name his kid Zuzu. <laughs> I mean, there is, there is no. No excuse for that whatsoever. Really I could guess. <laughs> so he might be mentally disturbed anyway. I, like, you, I mean, very, it could have all been a hallucination. Yeah, very see, much my, so. Well, my mother's name was Sarah Catherine, uh, but I'm going to call you Zuzu. 
All right, John. Uh, high frame rates, yes or no? Um, I, it depends. Honestly, I don't like watching movies that shoot high frame rate just for high frame rate sake. But if I'm going to do uh, slow motion, I'm definitely going to go high frame oh, rate. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, I'm specifically oh, the move towards like yeah. Peter Jackson's insistence that that's where we're going. You know, I I don't. I'm a 24 frame. Me too, man. I like uh, or 23.9. So you know, however you want to look at it. Uh, I you know, and and here's the thing. I love the three Lord of the Rings movies, um, Fellowship and you know, Two Towers and all that. Uh, I've only seen part of the Hobbit films because I I didn't really have a desire to watch them. I guess like a burning desire, but also like when I actually did watch them, they felt kind of fake. Yeah, absolutely. And for for a variety of reasons, and I'm sure the frame rate contributed to that, mm. but also just they didn't they didn't feel as uh, human, I guess, to me as what the others did. And there's a point of diminishing returns, isn't there? There's I mean, you need that veil, and if you go too high of a frame rate and you get too much resolution, mm-hmm. you've stepped into real life and, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah, yeah. or even past it. And you, that fuzziness, you need that, that dream state a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That fuzziness and that slight bit of choppiness mm-hmm. of the 24 frames. That's, I mean, that's really it. That like the slightest bit of a uh, uh, stop, not even stop motion, but you know, mm-hmm. the, the frame change. I mean, that's what, yeah, you're right. You do need that. Cameron and Jackson think that kids who grow up with high frame rates, that that will be completely normal to them and they'll prefer that. Do you believe that? Or do you think subjectively, if you had never seen either one and, and somebody sat you down into a, in front of the same movie shot in 24 and and, yeah. a, and, the, and the same one shot in 48. Do you believe that you would prefer the 24? Oh, oh God. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they may be onto something, you know, I mean, it's possible if, if they're, if they're immersed in that media environment, that's what they'll think. You know, that's what they'll, they'll be accustomed to. You know, I, 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 I I'll pass on that one. <laughs> yeah. I honestly believe that it's objective that 24 looks better, that the motion blur is more pleasing to yeah. the eye. Yeah. I, and I know it has, it has to do with like persistence of vision and stuff mm-hmm. like that too. And I mean, so there's a lot of uh, physiological things there, you know, that I just right. don't know enough on the, on the, how right. the brain works. And of and course stuff. Cameron does. He understands. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. All yeah. Of yeah. It. Uh, yeah. Let's see. So your next feature, um, what resolution will you shoot in? Uh, we're probably we're gonna try to do 4K. Oh. Um, the reason being um, because by the time we get it done, I have a feeling that'll be the minimum that a distributor uh, requires. So that if we've got a 1080 film, it they wouldn't even take it. So you kind of have to be thinking several years down the road, what kind of format is going to be the preferred. Um, even though most people will still be watching it on a standard definition DVD player that's up converted to uh, an HD TV, we would still want to be prepared for yeah, that. And I totally agree. And it totally sucks. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, so we're, you know, I know nothing about 4k, like as far as red cameras and all that. And so that would definitely be a learning curve for me too. So much um, more expensive oh, and the workflow mm-hmm. and oh my goodness. Oh yeah. Very much so. Let's get your black magic. Yeah, well, actually, the short film we shot this summer was on a Blackmagic Pocket, um, mm-hmm. which is still 1080, but it's a beautiful 1080. Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's one of those things where I'm like, it was both good and a complete pain in the butt at times because of drop frames and any number of other things. So, Last question. All right. This is the big one. If okay. You, if you could look like any actor in their prime for six months of your life. Holy crap. 
All right. <laughs> Can we count? Uh, this is very relevant to something I just saw today. Can we count Jeff Goldblum right now as his prime? Yeah, sure. Okay, I would totally look like Jeff Goldblum. Like seriously, today's Jeff Goldblum. Today's Jeff Goldblum. Man, uh, there's some uh, GQ. That's a ballsy fun. pick. <laughs> oh yeah, it's. Uh, I, I just shared something on Facebook today with my wife because she loves Jeff Goldblum, and um, and that's not the reason why I'm choosing this answer. <laughs> I, I have a man crush on Goldblum, uh, but I told uh it's one of those things where I'm like, how, this whole article was about how is it that Jeff Goldblum has become even hotter <laughs> as he's gotten older, and so. There's all these like GQ photos of him and stuff, and you're just like, oh my god, this man is amazing. Uh, but it's also the personality. You got to have the personality with it too. But yeah, I would I would give Goldblum. So you uh, you prefer you prefer uh, Silver Fox Goldblum over Jurassic Park cut and shredded Goldblum. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Silver Fox Goldblum on this one. Interesting. Uh, yeah, or 1980s Harrison Ford. We'll 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 change. We'll rotate. We'll maybe six months on one, six months on another. So witness witness era. Uh, probably not Witness Era. I'm going to go more um, definitely Temple of Doom, Temple of Doom. Uh, era would be a good one. Yeah, that's a good that's a good Indiana or that's a good Harrison Ford. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, he 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 had just you know he's a year out from phoning it in in the Jedi movie. So <laughs> exactly. He's actually you know and he's over forty, right? In uh, yeah. Temple of Doom, yeah. Is he? I mean, oh is yeah. He yeah. Okay, I guess yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah. He was up there when he got started. I mean, he was he was older. Um, yeah. Yeah, I feel like Wes Anderson is the only guy that understands what Goldblum is right now. Yeah, very much. Well, Wes Anderson, and we watched an episode of Portlandia, Portlandia the other day that had Goldblum in it. And my wife and I were just like, oh, my God, he's amazing. I mean, because they, like, they knew what his talent was. You know, like yes. as far as weirdo and stuff like that. It was like you totally captured Goldblum in this. I mean, it's so much personality and, and so magnetic. And, and like I would put him in everything if I had the chance. Oh, yeah, very much so. Well, John, we appreciate having you. Oh, well, thank you all. I yeah, mean, man, it's actually, this is, the, this is the perfect timing because I'm about to do bedtime with my kiddos and stuff. There but um, the... Uh, it's been a yeah. I could totally put my son in this episode if you want, but we can probably refrain <laughs> on that. Um, yeah, ask him what his favorite Star Wars character is. Uh, the but no, this was good. I'm, I'm glad. Um, and on my note, it, it is Phineas Gage actually. Um, it's uh, Phineas P H I N E A S. If you ever look him up, but there's totally like photos and stuff of him with the spike that went through his skull. It's crazy. And turned him into a nymphomaniac, right? It, it turned him into, yes, exactly. <laughs> just like Jessica Biel. Right, right. I mean, oh, my mixing stories. Out, out of school, man. <laughs> out of school. Uh, hey, just uh, one quick thing on, on Revelation Trail sequel. What What's your time frame? I mean, are you looking at, um, you know, a, a time frame is when you want this written? And... Um, well, it's like I said, it's written. We're just doing the polishes on the okay. script right now. Um and then we got to fundraise. Uh, I mean, I would love if somebody was like, "Yeah, you can do it next summer." I'd be like, "All right, let's make it work," you know. But it could, I even be like two years from now, you know. Mm. But time frame, narrative wise, it'll take place real time after the first film, so it could mm. be like six to seven years later. Okay. Um, and so we'll be working with that. Do you love asking for money? Uh, oh, it's my favorite part. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's the best. Um, John, don't don't be a stranger. No, I won't. No, and no, you're, sorry, my my kids are coming in here, so I'm just telling them hi. Um, no, I um, no, I and and like I said, I I'm hoping I, I catch you guys again at River's Edge. Yeah, we'll we'll keep in touch. And again, thank you, and and get those kiddos in the bed. 
I will. I will. My son's running around with a safari hat and, and uh, <laughs> Bob the Builder uh, pajamas or something. So wow. uh, that's a right. good crossover there. Hey Silas. Hey, who's your favorite Star Wars character? He says, I don't know, but I'm fairly certain it's either R2-D2 or Darth Vader, right? Darth Vader. Darth Vader. There you go. There you go. Darth Vader. All right. Good man. I'll talk to you, talk to you guys later. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Good John. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you come to see me in the movie. And I know that you will plainly see. Biggest fool that's ever hit the big time. And all I gotta do is act naturally